see, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us. And the cameras. And those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Ready for Close-Up. My name is Andy and I'm here with Sam again. Hi, Sam. Hi, Andy. And today we want to talk about the year that has been. In many ways, this was a year to forget. However, not so for movies and movie watching in general. Living through unprecedented times, we were forced to adjust our movie viewing and consumption habits. We've discussed the tensions between classic cinema viewing and streaming at length in one of our previous episodes. Movies faced stiff competition from TV shows this year, and serial storytelling seemed to be in many ways well adapted for long times spent at home. The output of new so-called Netflix and new must-see shows never seemed to cease. And yet, this year also gave time to discover a new director, a new genre, or rewatch a long-forgotten favorite. In this episode, we would like to look back at this truly unprecedented year in terms of movies and TV shows. And while we agree it might be difficult to create a strict countdown of great movies from 2020, simply because cinematic output was so circumstantially low, we thought of rather discussing what we saw in 2020. Movies and TV shows from any year or age highlights, recommendations, discoveries, or just flat-out escapist guilty pleasures. So in that sense, Sam, why don't you kick off and tell us about one of your highlights this year? Well, first of all, as you put it so well in your introduction, this was really a time to watch much more at home. And I'm not normally used to watching things on regular television, but when I did, I actually made a great discovery on Swiss national television. They produced a mini series called Friede, so peace, which deals with the time just after World War II. They were looking at a fictionalized story of a couple. He's an industrialist, a young industrialist, and she is looking after kids who've been brought to Switzerland from the concentration camp of uh, Buchenwald. Something that actually happened. A group of kids was taken on by Switzerland for humanitarian reasons. And so Frieden tells the story of those two parallel things happening after World War II. And of course, Switzerland having been involved, not militarily, but certainly economically, it raises some really hot potato issues about Switzerland <laughs> in World War II. So did they do enough for Jewish refugees? And did industrialists actually cooperate during the war and then also profit after the war from the post-war situation where they would, for instance, rely on the expertise of people who came in from Germany? And it's really well produced, well written and well acted by a number of really promising young Swiss actors and actresses. And I thought just the production values and this critical look at the Swiss history in World War II without making it too kitschy, but also without being overly 
you know, in a documentary style, really made for compelling television. And that was my highlight. What about you? Did you watch a lot of productions on Netflix or other streaming platforms or television? Well, obviously, I think like like everyone, I think this has become much more a spare time for so many through all these lockdowns and time spent at home. I haven't seen Frieden. I saw many other TV shows. Of course, Netflix, I think, was really the dominant force there. And I don't know if it was... For them also a bit luck, but they they really had a lot of big movies coming out, big TV productions in the pipeline that were released this year. And I think many, many people flocked to that really religiously almost. One of my highlights would be the productions that Ryan Murphy did for Netflix. And in our very first episode, we talked extensively about the TV show Hollywood that he produced. Later on, he also made Ratchet, more of a horror thriller kind of origin story of Mildred Ratchet, the character from the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which is maybe a little bit this mixture of Wes Anderson meets a horror movie, <laughs> which I think has really, really nice production values, just like Hollywood as well. But I think also suffered a bit from the Ryan Murphy curse. I would say that the second half, the last two, three episodes completely derailed again. So I think it was really <laughs> nice to watch. I think um, Sarah Paulson is great as always. And there are a lot of great supporting roles in there as well with Judy Davis. Sharon Stone also has a bit part. So I think Ratchet was really nice to watch if you're into this little bit retro glamour Hollywood horror, if that's a thing. But Ryan Murphy also churned out uh, some movies. He made The Boys in the Band, which was a movie adaptation of a Broadway adaptation that was actually an adaptation of another movie from the 60s, early 70s, um, with a, a cast that consisted only of homosexual men. So I think I haven't seen that one, unfortunately, it's still on my to watch list. But what I did watch was very recently The Prom, which was another Ryan Murphy production starring Meryl Streep, Nicole Kidman, James Corden, amongst many others. And it's a movie musical about some luckless Broadway stars who go to Indiana to help a little teenager, a lesbian, to support her because she's not allowed to the prom with her girlfriend. It's this contrast between extravagant city people and maybe more the ignore, um, ignorant Bible Belt community. The movie, I think, is very kitschy. The songs are probably not all that great, but the production value, again, is really high and the movie is really carried by Meryl Streep's energy. And she's so much fun to watch and I think she really carries the movie. Just great to see her again in this really loose, goofy role where she can sing, dance, twirl around, be flirty, be fun. Even though the cast, I think, on a whole, is also very fun to watch. So this was, I think, great to see that there can be such an escapist movie musical in these three times. So the Ryan Murphy extravaganzas on Netflix were definitely a highlight for me. I actually saw Boys in the Band and it was certainly an interesting look back at this period in the late 60s and they kept it pretty much the way it was in the original. So it's really a strange look at homosexuality from our perspective, looking back 50 years at what happened since. 
and it, it, it's well done, it's well acted, just like any Ryan Murphy production is. I would also like to point out two productions I saw on Netflix this year, just very briefly. I think Unorthodox, a miniseries about an Orthodox Jewish uh, woman who flees her Orthodox uh, husband and family to go to Berlin and discover a new life was really impressive. I love the, the, the contrast between mm. uh, New York and Berlin and, and, and kind of orthodoxy and the, the vibes of Berlin. And I just recently saw the trial of the Chicago 7, which deals with the trial against seven people accused of having somewhat sparked the riots against the DNC, so the Democratic National Congress in Chicago in 1968, causing chaos and, and demonstrations and, and violence. And this is really well written. Aaron Sorkin wrote the script and directed it. And so it's a great courtroom drama. Netflix in particular has also this very big range of, of movies and content and topics that they cover. So many themes or also maybe minorities say that they get a spotlight. It's on one hand also a very positive development, I would say. I think it's even become, you know, a political force if you look at the impact that shows like Hollywood or Queer Eye, Circus of Books, The Boys in the Band, have on, I think, the political discussion in the US especially, but also elsewhere, considering that so many millions see these productions. I'm sure Netflix by now has also become an influencing force for public opinion. And I guess it's no coincidence that the Obamas have signed a massive contract for many future productions with Netflix. They realize that this is a driving force behind mostly a liberal agenda. I was wondering, you also went to see and have watched many uh, movie classics. So what was your biggest discovery there among the, the classics? The lack of new movies made space in a way for classics and maybe a bit forgotten gems. I've been to the cinema special in summer. It was mostly classics at film podium, as you said. And I discovered Barbara Stanwyck. I mean, of course, I knew her before. I mean, I knew she was the later stage in her career. She was this matriarch in these TV shows as the Big Valley or the Colbys or the Thornbirds. But she was actually a very versatile actress in the 30s and 40s, especially in the 40s, where she really played a lot of different roles. She was a good comedic actress, but she could also play dramatic roles. And she was really well known for uh, her noir movies. So she played in thrillers a lot. And I saw this year a bunch of her movies. Amongst them was uh, Sorry Wrong Number from 1948, which is a noir thriller also starring a very young Burt Lancaster as her husband who tries to kill her. And it's this little bit Hitchcockian set up that she is bedridden, she's sick, she can't leave her bed even, and her only connection to the other world is her phone by her bedstand. And by accident, she overhears a phone call of her husband saying that they should kill her. And then she's the whole movie basically revolves around her panic in her bed that the killer might come anytime. She's trying to make phone calls. And what sounds as a very constructed setup in a way really works. Also, thanks to Barbara Stanwyck. So that's a really nice thriller to watch. Also, Strange Love of Martha Ivers is another noir thriller with a very young Kirk Douglas again. I think it was his first major role, which is also a nice noir thriller. Barbara Stanwyck plays this rich industrial heiress who marries a young man of no means. And the, the love soon after the marriage shatters. And again, the story is told in back flashes and we discover a terrible secret. And of course, 
the third movie which I would highly recommend if you want to have a little Barbara Stanwyck retrospective is uh, Double Indemnity by Billy Wilder from 1944 which is per se an amazing movie but there Barbara Stanwyck really plays the ultimate film noir from Fatal she endorses an insurance guy to kill her husband and then there are twists and tricks and turns she's just really cool as ice in this movie and it really shows this broad range of of Barbara Stanwyck so I've become a fan and um, I'm looking forward to discover more of her work I'll yet have to see any Barbara Stanwyck movie I think literally I haven't seen any besides maybe a couple of episodes of the Colby's which I guess doesn't count <laughs> strictly <laughs> no, so that's definitely no. a great recommendation I'll go into into some of those as well at one point apparently she said this is the biggest turd I ever did <laughs> so and unfortunately it was her last work um but <laughs> why not go out with a turd <laughs> exactly but she had she had a great career really from from the 30s up until the late 80s what about you sam do you have any classics rediscovered or discovered thanks to my sometimes not being so willing to watch an entire movie i actually decided to go into the tv work of alfred hitchcock because i have seen of course all of his feature films but i'd only seen a few of his alfred hitchcock presents and the alfred hitchcock hour episodes which are the two tv shows that he did between the mid 50s and uh, early 1960s i got more into that world and then also bought the two dvd collections of both shows and now i have all the episodes at home and i haven't managed to watch all the i don't know how many it is 350 episodes altogether about 20 of which that he directed himself and so they're great little gems from the 50s and 60s because they are only between 20 and 50 minutes long so you get to see a lot of like mini productions they are extremely densely written because each of them of course has to have some kind of major suspense point or have has to reach its end by the end of those 20 to 50 minutes mm -hmm. and then all of them also feature either stars that have been stars at this point or ones that will become stars later on and so it's this great little experimental area for Hitchcock to try out storylines to try out stars and sometimes to sh just show off different sides of his talent or, or do something that he used to do or that he would do later in his films. I just wanted to point out the highlight episodes that I found. There was a kind of a mini Vertigo story in an episode called The Crystal Trench starring Patricia Owens, which is basically about a woman who wants to retrieve the frozen body of her mountain climber husband after many years because she stays faithful to him over all these years and then it <laughs> turns out in the last shot that he carries a necklace with a picture of another woman in it and that's kind of the punchline at the end so she remained faithful and he in fact was in love with someone else at this point many okay. years ago so that's kind of the cynical punchline at the end there's claude rains and also a very young Charles Bronson in a great and creepy episode called And So Died Rabuchinska, which is about a creepy puppet master. And finally, I think the highlight of the entire series must probably be Breakdown, starring Joseph Cotton, where there's a, a traffic accident of a, a very egotistical businessman who seems kind of heartless and cold and after the accident he is or he appears dead but in fact he isn't and he has no kind of like locked in syndrome he still sees what's going on around him but 
from the outside he appears dead so he has to watch how people mistreat him and kind of take his wallet away and kind of throw him somewhere in the ditch and it's a really highly moralistic episode of course but at the same time really well done because Hitchcock works with the perspectives and what Joseph Cotton sees and what, what goes on around him and builds up this panic inside this man that were somewhat sharing and somewhat were also laughing at him for what, what's happening to him. So great little vignettes of Hitchcock filmmaking and a great collection of mini storylines, short stories put into movies. So great discovery. And I still have like hours and hours to go. So in this serial storytelling nowadays, you have all these plot lines and character developments that meander for episodes and episodes that you sometimes, I don't know, you don't really get the gist anymore. So I think it's nice to have nice and crisp little horror movies <laughs> within 20 minutes. Absolutely, if they're good enough, I think if the you know if they're worth watching as a series, because sometimes there's also the, the opposite effect where I think no, now I want to watch like a, a real movie, you know, with the production values, with the effort that was put into it, and sometimes I don't feel up to a TV production. And what this year was then your biggest discovery? Something you would not have watched or known or seen before 2020. Let's not forget that we still had this year an Oscar ceremony and also good things happened in 2020. So I think the Oscar win for Parasite in the beginning of the year, I think for me was quite a satisfactory moment and also a revelation in a, in a sense. I'm not, I think I saw it already in late 2019. But then I think all this this hype really built up and this momentum of Korean movie movies and Korean cinema really increased and increased. And I think then with, with the Oscar win, I think he won four Oscars, if I'm not mistaken. For Parasite really showed that there is another way of storytelling, another way of doing cinema. And for me, this was quite a revelation, to be honest. And I'm not sure if it was, I think it was just because of Parasite, I also watched a little bit more of Korean movies. There's also Netflix again, um, Oksha, which is also directed by Bong Joon-ho, so the director of Parasite. But I've also seen on other occasions uh, Korean movies. The Wailing, for example, is, is more of this mysterious crime thriller. It's a little bit, like, little bit like a Fincher movie, but it has this supernatural spin on it. But for me, clearly a highlight and a revelation this year was another Korean movie. It's called The Handmaiden. It's from 2016 and directed by John Wook Park, who also made um, Old Boy in the early 2000s or Lady Vengeance. So really rough, brutal movies that are really shying away from Western viewing habits, I would say. And again, The Handmaiden really caught me completely by surprise. I don't want to say too much about the movie because similar to Parasite, the less you know, the better it is. I will say this much though. It's the story of a little thief who's endorsed by a gentleman to live with a rich Japanese lady. And the story is set in, in the 30s in, in Korea during the Japanese um, invasion. The pocket thief is, is endorsed to live with the, this lady and get her trust, get her confidence. And then also they wanna get her heir loom. They wanna trick her money. And there are so many twists and turns and revelations that there would be 20 movies um, could be filled with this. And I think this is, I was so 
surprised by not only the storytelling, but also the way it was filmed. It has beautiful cinematography, the costumes are excellent, the acting is really on point. And it's not just some sort of exoticism, I wouldn't say that, but it's more really this completely different approach to movies and to storytelling, which also surprised me with uh, Parasite, that I think the Koreans do, do so well. You have like everything in one movie, so similar to Parasite, you have really social satire, you have a little bit of, of comedy, a little bit of drama, but also brutal horror elements in it. And I think The Handmaiden goes in a similar direction with, with maybe a little bit more sex, <laughs> this much I will say. Yeah, it's really Korean cinema, I think, has so much more to offer. And I'm, this was really, for me, a, a big revelation. And I highly recommend Parasite as well as the handmaiden. I must say, sitting at the cinema this year, it was really also watching Parasite where I had that thought, you know, what's the future of cinema gonna be like? How can cinema further develop than where it's already been? Except for maybe technological developments where things will look better or effects will be greater. In terms of storytelling, that was the biggest revelation for me too, thinking that that would be something that takes cinema to a completely new level and where it's kind of constantly be thrown back and forth between genres and expectations and you'd be constantly surprised in all kinds of directions. Mm -hmm. That was really also a, a great find, I must say. It's strange that you picked independently from me also a, a cinema culture. I picked Italy and especially Italian genre cinema of the 60s and 70s because that was my biggest find. I had known, you know, some of the Sergio Leone westerns, of course, but only very few. I had seen one or two Fellini movies, but really now I went more closely into that field of film that was also highly influential. If you think of what Tarantino is doing, what Scorsese did later on, and some other Hollywood and international directors that were inspired by the horror, the, the Western, the, the thriller, the, the violence. So I watched a lot of the movies by director Mario Bava, who's famous for his horror movies. And one of the highlights that I saw was a movie called Lisa and the Devil, 1974, starring Elke Sommer. She's traveling Spain and she somewhat gets lost in Toledo and finds an image of Telly Savalas that who looks like a devil and then later bumps into him in person and he takes her to this creepy villa where they spend together with his family and then the mystery around his family somewhat slowly gets discovered and the atmosphere is absolutely creepy like in any Baba movie he's great at using color and music and camera angles to create the perfect creepy movie atmosphere. Of course Dario Argento was a great find as well, even before, but now I discovered even more of his movies. For instance, uh, Inferno, which is part of his uh, witchcraft trilogy, maybe Suspiria being the most uh, famous one. And Inferno again throws a couple of young characters into this maelstrom of horror, disgusting, you know, death scenes, and but then also very highly psychological deep dives into the psyche of the characters but at the same time they're constantly in all types of buildings and landscapes where they're being attacked or murdered or they have to find their way out before anything gets destroyed so he's a master at that at thrillers but also at horror and then finally i got to see more leone westerns especially the dollar trilogy 
with the good, the bad, and the ugly being the absolute highlight of those so-called spaghetti westerns, Italian-produced westerns, starring Clint Eastwood, and of course using the music of Ennio Morricone to perfection. And I also saw a later Leone film, Once Upon a Time in America, in the long version, at the cinema, one of my few cinema pleasures this year. And the combination of Morricone and Leone, again, there is, is absolutely riveting, beautiful, perfect, and not, not a minute is lost. I could go on, you know, I saw also Fellini that you recommended, Giulietta degli Spiriti, which is absolutely picture perfect in every way. And I recently also saw the newest movie on Netflix starring Sofia Loren, The Life Ahead, where she plays um, the Simon Signore role from 1977. She plays an elderly prostitute who takes on a young boy, a young refugee boy, and looks after him. And it's very touching, very well acted, and directed by her son, Eduardo Ponti. This would be a great newer example of Italian cinema. But of course, I was mostly watching the ones from the 60s and 70s. And I must say, that was a great, innovative, influential period for international cinema. And Italy played a big role in shaping what came afterwards and having, I think, reverberations until the present day. So what are you looking forward to most of all in the upcoming year? Let's say if this were to turn out <laughs> to be a regular movie year or anything you already have on your screen to watch later on? Well, my to watch list I think is is endless to be honest I would just be happy to be able to go to a cinema again see a premiere of a movie again and I'm not just talking about the tentpole Hollywood blockbusters like Wonder Woman or the new James Bond or any kind of these movies but also just being able to to discover something else like like maybe there's a new good French movie out there maybe there's a new parasite in the in the wings I think this is also the beauty at least for me going to cinemas regularly to discover new movies and seeing them on the screen that I might potentially not watch on my couch on Netflix so I'm really I'm hoping it will be soon sooner than than expected that we can go again and of course I have a few on my watch list of I already mentioned the James Bond that I really want to see but yeah, I, I think at this stage, I'll take any movie, as long as it's in a cinema. What about you, Sam? Well, I mean, it goes without saying that, of course, looking forward to Bond is my biggest thing. But it's, it's been there for so long, the anticipation for Bond, that I can easily wait for another few months. It's been postponed so many times. But definitely, I agree with you, just being able to plan a night at a cinema, seeing a new production, or then just another movie classic. And I think one of the, the highlights for me this year was also going to see Peeping Tom with you at, at Film Podium and then actually talking about the movie right after. So I, I do hope we'll get a chance in any future episode also to actually watch a movie and then do a review afterwards because we were almost never able to do that. And I think that would be fun just getting those live reactions also of a fresh off the press production. So let's keep our hopes up 
that this will be possible sooner and later. Absolutely. And I think this was also, I think, a nice experience that during this year we also created our little podcast, which I think is great fun to do. And as you said, I hope we can get soon our hands, our movie geek eyes on um, some new productions that we can discuss rather than just going back to the classics, which is also nice, but definitely... Uh, be great to discuss new movies and i'm sure and i know there are movies on the horizon so i'm looking forward to that right so let's take this as a motto for our 2021 movie year and we hope that everyone is starting nicely into the new year despite everything and we would be very happy if you joined us again once we are again ready for a close-up don't tell me it's because you've been in love with me all this time no, I never loved you, Walter, not you or anybody else. I'm rotten to the heart. I used you just as you said. That's all you ever meant to me. Until a minute ago. When I couldn't fire that second shot. I never thought that could happen to me. Sorry, baby, I'm not buying. I'm not asking you to buy. Just hold me close. Goodbye, baby.